will wake you up from your turkey coma. Well, good morning and uh, welcome to those of you here at Crossroads Church in-house. Welcome to those of you who are watching online at our Fort Lupton campus. If we have not met, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and, uh, and it's a privilege to be here together. It's so good, isn't it, for the people of God to gather in the same place and to, to sing and to worship and to, to, to worship our King today. And so uh, I want to tell you a story that may be familiar to you. In fact, if you have seen the movie Unbroken or read the book, you know this story. It's a story about a man named Louis Zamperini. Now, Louis Zamperini, Louis Zamperini was an Olympic runner back in the day. And when World War II came around, he found himself serving in the forces and as a pilot. And long story, really short, one day he and his crew were out flying over the Pacific Ocean and they had to take an emergency landing into the water uh, where they ended up crashing the plane and he and his surviving crew members had to survive on a life raft for 47 days. Now just imagine what that would be like. And then one day after, I mean, almost not making it. In fact, I think some of the crew members didn't make it at that point. But they, one morning they see a ship off in the horizon, and they think, oh my goodness, we're saved. Turns out that it was an enemy ship, it was a, a Japanese ship, and they got captured by them and taken to Japan and put into one of the harshest prisoner of war camps that was known. And there for a couple of years, Louis and his fellow uh, crew members were tortured and beaten and starved. I mean, just remarkable amounts of pain that they were put through. In fact, one of, the, one of the guards that was known for his reputation of being the harshest and the meanest was a man named Mutsuhiro Watanabe. He was also known as the bird, right? And you remember seeing this in the movie, and, and, and Watanabe was the worst of the worst. He was, this was his reputation. His torture was, was terrible. And so over a couple of years, they faced uh, all of this torture in this prisoner of war camp until finally the war was over and Japan surrendered and all of the POWs were set free. Uh, but this was just the beginning of, of things for Louis because he went home and you can just imagine the amount of, of torture, the, the intellectual and the mental and the, the emotional uh, fatigue and, and torture that he had gone through and, and what was going on in, in terms of the recovery after that, the PTSD and the nightmares. In fact, one, one night Louis had a nightmare that he was able to get the best of Watanabe, that he was still in the camp and, and he was fighting him and ended up trying to choke his captor only to wake up and realize that he was choking his wife. So he realized things are not going the way I need them to, to go. And he started drinking and he started this downward spiral. And then one day he heard the words of Billy Graham. And in that moment, in that time, he turned his life around and started following Jesus. And what he began to realize was that these chains of unforgiveness and, and these wounds that he had carried from this experience began to, to lose their grasp on his life. In fact, he got to the point to where he was able to forgive his captors. Five years later, he goes back to Japan and was able to, to meet with many of them face to face, embrace them, and to tell them that, that he forgives them. Watanabe wasn't there. In fact, he searched for him for decades. And, and several decades later, in 1998, 
Louis was the one to carry the Olympic torch in Japan. And so he, as he goes and prepares to go to Japan to do this, he wanted to meet with Watanabe. He, in fact, invited him to come and meet with him. Unfortunately, though, Watanabe declined his invitation. But Louis had still written a letter to him, and part of that letter said this, I committed my life to Christ. Love replaced the hate I had for you. Christ said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. Now we look at this story, right? I mean, these are the kind of stories that movies are made out of, which is why it was made into a movie. But we look at this story and we think, wow, how in the world, how in the world could you go through what he went through and then come to a place later where you've forgiven them? And not just in word, and not just like flippantly, but you've actually forgiven the debt that they owed you. You've, you've wiped the slate clean. How in the world can you do that? You see, this weekend, we're starting a new series called Canceled. Now, when you first saw the title, you might have thought, we're talking about cancel culture and how right now we're living in sort of this crazy time where, where people and organizations and philosophies and religions and all this sort of stuff can just be kind of canceled for something that happened decades ago. But don't worry, we're not going down that road. So if your heart rate raised a little bit, you can take a deep breath and, and, and put your mind at ease. We're actually talking about something that's much more meaningful, something that is much more relevant to you and to your life. And if we can grasp a hold of it, we will never be the same. It's actually a type of canceled that we all want. See, we're talking for three weeks, we're going to be talking about forgiveness. Forgiveness. And a working definition of forgiveness is this, is to wipe the slate clean, to forgive the debt, to cancel the debt. The, the, whenever there's an injustice, there's, there's a debt that is made and, and forgiveness says, okay, there's no more debt, that, that the slate gets wiped clean. And we're talking about forgiveness because it's easier said than done, right? I mean, you might be thinking, why in the world are we talking about this? Isn't this one of the, the elemental pieces of our faith? I mean, this is what it's based on, is, is this whole idea of forgiveness. And, and, and why would we spend so much time talking about it? Because if we're honest, forgiveness is, is hard. I mean, every single one of us has been face-to-face -face with injustice, haven't we? Something that's been done to you? something that maybe you've done to, to someone else. You know, we, every single person on earth knows what that feels like, knows that when injustice happens, that deep down inside, we know that there is something broken here in our world, that there's something left undone. And when we experience injustices left to our own devices, we can do anything to try to get rid of it, right? I mean, let's be honest, we can easily hold grudges for what's been done to us. We can try to repay that person what they did to us, right? I mean, this is over and over again. Or if we're the one that, that caused the injustice, we can really beat ourselves up, can't we? In fact, some of us, we've been carrying regret for decades. Sometimes we can just try to make up for it or we can just try to rationalize our way out of it and say, oh, well, whatever they did to me wasn't that big of a deal. Whatever I did to that person wasn't that big of a deal. But, but what if there's a better way? You see, some of us right now today listening to this are sitting in that dungeon. You're, you're sitting in that dungeon. 
of injustice. Because you realize something's broken, that something's happened to me or, or you've done something unjust. And you desperately want freedom. You desperately want to grasp a hold of this forgiveness that people talk about all the time, but you just don't quite know how to get there. It's hard. In fact, let's just level the playing field for a moment. Can we be honest with each other? How many of you have ever had a hard time forgiving someone else? Let's be honest. Raise your hands. All right, keep them up and everybody look around. Okay, see, you're not alone. How many of you on the other side of that coin have ever had a hard time accepting forgiveness from somebody else or from God? Raise your hand. Keep it up. Look around. Okay, see, this is exactly why we're spending time talking about it because it is easier said than done. And so in the coming weeks, in weeks two and three, we're going to be talking about what is it, how do I live in the truth of being forgiven? How do I not only intellectually receive forgiveness from God or from other people, but then how do I live day to day in that truth? And then in week three, we're going to be talking about then how do I take that truth of forgiveness and extend it to other people? Those people who have hurt me, those people that have caused injustice to me, how do I actually truly forgive them and what does it really mean to do that? But before we go there, often we want to jump there quick. We want to jump to how do I forgive somebody? How am I forgiven? But, but before we go there, there's actually a very important step, a step that we often overlook, a step that's not very fun to talk about a step that's not flashy or it doesn't give us really good, like warm, fuzzy feelings, but it's a critical step. And it's a step that if we miss it, it'll actually keep us stuck in that very dungeon that we're trying to get out of. Think of this step as the doorway to forgiveness, all right? Forgiveness is based on the price that Jesus paid. We just finished the gospel of Luke. And in the last season, we looked at how Jesus died a very real death on a very real cross. He was buried in a very real tomb and he very much rose back to life. All of this was to pay the debt for you and for me. This step, however, that we're talking about today is the doorway into that forgiveness. Okay. What is the doorway? Well, Jesus says it right here. This is at the beginning of his ministry. He says these words. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I want to adjust right away. This word has a ton of baggage, okay? Some of you might be thinking of the old preacher with a suit and tie, holding his Bible, screaming at the congregation, repent, right? Or you might be thinking of the guy on the street corner downtown that's yelling, you know, turn or burn, right? And everybody's just angry at him. Okay, so there, I get it that there's a lot of, of baggage. It's a churchy word. It's a, church, it's a word that we don't typically use in any other setting of life, but it's actually a, a beautiful word that's an invitation to life and wholeness for us. Because repentance simply means this, a change of mind and heart that requires the action of turning away. That's what it is. Repentance is a fancy word that simply means a change of mind and heart that requires the action of turning away. Now, if you've been at church for a while, if you've been following Jesus for a while, 
your temptation right now is to say, okay, I don't need this sermon because I've already done that. I mean, 30 years ago, I repented. 30 years ago, it was clear. I was walking this way, and then Jesus turned me around, and now I am walking this way. But I have, I I don't want to, well, I do want to burst your bubble a little bit, because Jesus' command here is is a command, something that we lose in our English translation, but the way that it's written in the original Greek is a command with ongoing action. What Jesus is saying here is, repent and keep on repenting. Turn and keep on turning. What he's talking about here is a lifestyle. It's a habit. It's something that we do every day. Just like when we take our first breath after we're born, we keep on breathing. So Jesus, when he says repent, it's an invitation to continue repenting. So what does this mean? We're going to look at what this word means. A change of mind and heart that requires the action of turning. Think of it this way. Is that first we have to recognize it, which is our mind. We have to regret it, which is our heart, and then we have to turn from it, which is the action. We have to recognize, we have to regret, and then turn. So we're just going to spend some time looking at these three things, okay? What does it mean to recognize it? What does it mean to recognize it? It's, It's simply recognizing what's really there. What's really there. Taking a cold, hard look at ourselves at our sin, at our brokenness. Now this can be, arguably, probably the hardest step in all of this. Why? Because none of us like to do that. I mean, we live in a world, don't we, of filters. Everything's filtered through something. We don't like to look at ourselves, which is why times of silent reflection and prayer are just so hard for many of us because I don't wanna stop and actually see what's going on in here. I'm going to distract myself. I'm going to listen to music. I'm going to point out everybody else's mistakes. But man, when it comes to actually stopping and looking in here, that's another story. But this again is the first step. We have to recognize it. We have to stop and say, what is really there? Whether we think it's big and blatant or small and and hidden, it's it's a full acknowledgement of whatever is there, the motivations, the thoughts, that inner dialogue, those things that you think about that other coworker at work, that if they knew it, man, would crush them. Just imagine this, if your brain was able to connect to our computer and we were able to put on the screen all of your thoughts from the week and motivations, all the things that only you know about. I mean, if, man, if that was me, like you, you would never see me run so fast. Talk about Olympic runners, right? I mean, here's the thing. We need to stop and we need to actually recognize what's going on. This is what the Bible calls confession. It's confessing to God. Here's what it is. God, here's the real me. And here's the thing. He already knows it all. He already knows it all, right? When we try to run from it, when we try to hide from it, we're just trying to trick ourselves. There's no sense in trying to to ignore it or hide from it. Where's the selfishness? Where's those motivations, those little dark corners of our heart, the doubting God? What is that for you? That's the first step. It's a hard step. We've got to recognize what's really there. And after we recognize it, then we have to regret it. Now, what I don't mean is that you now sign yourself up for a life of regret. 
In fact, some of you today have been carrying regret for a long time. Maybe you know that thing that you did and it was four decades ago. And man, regret has just been a familiar friend for a long, long time. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is a regret that's, tr- that, that's being truly sorry for my sin. That, that, that there's remorse, that there's, that there's guilt, that there's this sense of, oh my goodness, I am extremely sorry for what I've done. But here's the thing is there's a right way to be sorry and there's a wrong way to be sorry. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, for godly grief or godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Another way to say it in in this version of the Bible, it says this, now this type of deep sorrow, godly sorrow, is not so much about regret, but it's about producing a change of mind and behavior that ultimately leads to salvation. But the other type of sorrow, worldly sorrow, is fleeting and only brings death. You see, there's two types of being sorry. There's a type of sorry that leads to death. There's a type of sorry that leads to life. There's worldly sorrow and there's godly sorrow. So let's look at those. What is worldly sorrow? In short, worldly sorrow is this. It's sorry that I got caught. Right? We all know what that's like. I mean, growing up, right? What can I get away with? And then the moment you get caught and grounded, it's like, I'm sorry, mom and dad. I'm sorry. I can't. Right? And, and we're groveling. And really deep down inside, it's just please don't ground me for too long. Right? That's worldly sorrow. It's, sorrow that, it's sorry that I got caught. It's sorry that I'm having to, these painful consequences. It's sorry that I disrupted the relationship or the, the situation or whatever it is. It's sorry that I fell into the same thing again. It's sorry that I let you down. It's sorry that I hurt your feelings, that I broke your trust, that I, that I said something offensive. You see, worldly sorrow pays attention to everything uh, that's public, that's outside, but it overlooks the small things or the things that are secret that nobody knows about. You see, worldly sorrow is actually an accusation against God. Worldly sorrow says, God, your rules are too strict and the consequences are too harsh. You see, worldly sorrow is all about breaking the rules but still wanting God's blessing. Worldly sorrow is just simply not wanting to have the effects. You see, worldly sorrow does acknowledge sinful behavior but it never confesses the wickedness deep down in our hearts underneath all of it. Do you see? Some examples of this is, uh, and we see it all the time, every now and then, a famous person, a celebrity, a, a movie star, a rock star, whoever it is that has a secret that's made public and what do they do in order to avoid a PR pitfall? They offer an apology, right? Or not being sorry that you stole from work until you get confronted about it. Not being sorry for the affair that you are currently engaged in until something comes to light and everything falls apart. See, that's worldly sorrow. It's sorry that I got caught. But godly sorrow, godly sorrow which leads to life, it actually moves past worldly sorrow. It moves past being sorry for the damage and the consequences 
And it moves to realizing that I have sinned against a holy and just and pure and righteous God. Whether it's public or not, whether it's big or small, wherever it's at, it's, it's acknowledging, God, I have sinned against you. You see, in godly sorrow, we're there before God, completely exposed, completely open, and everything about us, that we are completely dependent on him, desperate for his mercy, not trying to give excuse, not trying to get out of consequences, not trying to rationalize it or candy coat it, but just simply acknowledging the wickedness of our hearts and the offense it is against God and being deeply grieved over it. That's godly sorrow. There's a really great example of this in Psalm chapter 51. And this is written by King David, who, after he was king, abused his power and seduced his neighbor Bathsheba. She was married. Uh, he was also married to several wives. That's another sermon for another time. Not only that, but to try to cover up his sin, he sends Bathsheba's husband to the front lines of the battle to be killed. And after all of this comes to light, you would think that he would just be sad about his consequences in worldly sorrow, but he actually moves past that into godly sorrow. And he says this in Psalm chapter 51. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And then listen to this. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now you might hear that last line and think, wait, what? Is he delusional? What does he mean that against God and him only have I sinned? It sounds like he doesn't quite get it yet. But, but here's the thing. Um, godly sorrow is knowing that our sin is against God first and foremost. That no matter who else is hurt by it, that first and foremost, my sin is against a holy God. You see, it's not belittling the, the damage and the effect on everybody else, but it's saying that in comparison, in comparison, the wickedness in my heart and the sinful actions and thoughts and everything else that I do is primarily an offense against a holy God. And that compared to the seriousness of this, it's as if nothing else really matters. You see, usually we have that flipped around. Usually we have it opposite. Usually we say, okay, I've sinned against this person and I've really disrupted this relationship. I've broken trust. I've said this. I've hurt their feelings. I've gotten fired. I've done whatever it is, right? And, and we treat God kind of like a punching bag. We say, oh, no, no, no. God will forgive me. It's fine. Because remember the whole Jesus thing? Like he, he paid the price for sin. He kind of has to forgive me. It's okay because I know he's holy and righteous and all that sort of stuff, but, but, but he's got to forgive me. And we kind of treat God like a punching bag. And, and what godly sorrow says, no, 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 no. Let's, let's flip that around. That our sin is an offense to a God who cannot even look on sin. To a God who wants to destroy sin. You see, godly sorrow knows that there's nothing hidden from God's sight and that because of my sin, I deserve the worst. 
It's saying whatever circumstances, whatever, whatever consequences, whatever penalty comes from my sin, God, I deserve it. Because against you have I sinned. And this is where the enemy loves to step in. The enemy, the devil, Satan, also known as the accuser. He loves to step in right here. And you notice that the devil never comes to you with blatant lies. He never does. He never comes to you with totally outrageous lies. He comes to you with the truth first. And he comes to you and he says, you sinned again. True. You messed up big time. True. You failed. I can't believe you messed up again. Yep, all that's true. But then he begins to twist it and he begins to put my uh, thoughts in your mind where, where you begin to think and tell yourself, man, I'm, I'm worthless. I'm hopeless. I'm a failure. I'm just going to go crawl into a hole and die. God doesn't really love me. He just sort of tolerates me. I'm going to have to pay for this one. I'm going to have to earn my way back. There's no hope for me. This is always going to be my story. You see, Satan loves cancel culture because he wants nothing more than just to cancel you completely. He wants to steal from you. He wants to kill you and destroy you and completely cancel you and everything about you. But you see, God doesn't do that. You see, he cancels our sin, not us. You see, godly sorrow not only understands that I deserve the worst, but also understands that God came to save me from the worst. You see, we don't only have a just and holy and righteous God, but we have a God who is kind and merciful, and it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And so we first recognize it, and then we second move to godly sorrow and regretting it, and then we turn from it. We repent. We, we turn back. And like I said earlier, this turning is not just a one, one and done. It's not just a, uh, oh, I did that 30 years ago. It's an ongoing thing that we repent and we continue repenting, that we turn now and we continue returning, that we make it a lifestyle. It's sort of like when I'm driving my car. Now, I remember when I was learning how to drive, my parents taught me how to drive. And, and one of the things they taught me early on was you never make huge corrections, right? If you're, if you're drifting to one side of the lane, the last thing you want to do is like jerk the wheel to get back over to the, to the other side. You want to make small adjustments, along the way. You see, I live about five, year, uh, five miles from here, and, uh, and, and I don't have to make one single U-turn on my way to church. But every single time I come to here, I, I make hundreds of small little adjustments. You see what I'm saying? This is what repentance looks like. It's a continual turning. Now, there might be times in life where I'm making huge U-turns, like blatantly going the wrong way, and it's like, okay, I need to turn around and go this way. But a lot of the time, it's just simply making little adjustments along the way. This is what repentance looks like, a continual turning, doing it daily, doing it hourly, doing it every time we think about it, because there's always something there, isn't there? There's always something there. And when we do it regularly, when we do it as a habit, as a lifestyle, it refocuses our hearts and our minds onto the gospel. It refocuses our minds on to who we are and who God is and how much he loves us. You see, when we recognize it and when, when we regret it and when we turn from it, 
Here is our promise. In 1 John chapter 1, it says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, to cancel the debt, to wipe the slate clean. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, repentance doesn't pay for your sin. Jesus already did. Repentance is the door. And we stand in the truth then that we are completely forgiven, that there's nothing I have to pay for anymore, that we are completely forgiven. And not only that, but that God gives us the status of righteous and holy, that we get to now stand before a holy and just God, completely righteous and pure and holy. You see, we have to stand in that. And, and in that promise, there's no room for regret, no room for, for continuing to beat ourselves up, that we embrace that truth. It's like the prodigal son. You remember the story of the prodigal son who asks his father for his inheritance and, and leaves town and goes and spends it on wild living. And he finally comes to his senses as he's living in the pig pen, eating with the pigs. He comes to his senses and he recognizes what he did. He immediately regrets what he did. He was deeply sorrowful over it. And what does he do? He turned and went back home. But the story isn't done yet because as he was still a far way off, the father sees the son from a distance. And what does the father do? Do you remember? He runs to the son and embraces the son, puts a robe around his son, puts a ring on his finger and kills the fatted calf so that they could have a, a, a huge feast to celebrate his son returning. Now, what if when that happened, the son said, no, 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 no. Takes the robe off, hands it back to his father, takes the ring off, hands it back to his father and says, you guys go enjoy the fatted calf. I'm going to go work in the field because what I've done can't be forgiven. I need to go repay my debt. Did he truly repent? No. You see, repentance, true repentance always ends with our right standing before the father because of his promise to us that he is celebrating. Whenever we turn, he is celebrating He's saying, man, you're, you're here. I love you. I celebrate you. And so what is the invitation for you today? There's an invitation for all of us, whether, you've, whether you're still considering whether or not to follow Jesus or maybe you've been following Jesus for 40 years, there's an invitation for all of us. What is that invitation for you? Do you need to recognize something in your life? Maybe it's a motivation, maybe it's a thought, maybe it's just this dark corner in your heart that nobody else sees. Do you need to regret it truly? Do you need to move past being sorry for getting caught and just simply realizing that your sin is against a holy God? Or do you need to turn from your sin and turn back to Jesus, allowing him to place the robe on your shoulders and the ring on your finger? What is that invitation for you? We're gonna take just a, a short time, 30 seconds or so of quiet. And what I'd ask you to do is just to simply respond in your heart 
to whatever it is the Holy Spirit might be inviting you to now. Let's do that. Father, it's your love and your kindness that leads us to repentance. And God, today we do, we we turn back to you. Our hearts are prone to wander. Our hearts every every day are prone to to get off track and to forget and to to think more about our circumstances or to worry or to doubt or to to allow our anger and selfishness to, to overrule us, God. But we continue to turn back to you, God. And in doing so, Father, we stand in the truth and in the promise that we are forgiven and deemed holy and righteous. God, for those who are maybe turning to you today for the very first time, I thank you for the image of the Father running to the Son and embracing him. So God, as those who are turning to you for the first time today, Father, would you embrace them in that way? God, reassuring them in the heart of hearts, God, deep down inside, that they are loved, that they are forgiven. God, we thank you for it. And it's in the powerful name of your son that we pray. Amen. If you maybe prayed that prayer for the first time, if today maybe was the first time you ever turned to Jesus, we want to walk with you in that. We want to celebrate with you. We want to pray with you. We want to maybe talk about it or answer any questions you might have. And so simply by texting the name Jesus to this number, uh, there will be someone who would get in touch with you to, 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 to do that with you, all right? Every weekend at Crossroads Church, we take communion together. The bread and the cup that represents the body and the blood of Jesus who paid for the forgiveness that we get to experience. And so together we take the bread and we remember. And we take the cup that symbolizes the blood of Jesus, the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. And we remember. Friends, we're going to respond today to what God is doing and who he is by, by singing together. Uh, and so if you would stand with us, we're going to sing. And as we do, there's going to be people over here who'd love to pray with you online. There's someone there ready to pray with you. Just click the button uh, to pray. All right, let's sing. Our father is so good and kind. And he's not